Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. And then we retell some of it in Genesis chapter 44, and I was going to have Josh skip some pieces, but at the same time, I was brought back and reminded that we, as God's people, get the tremendous pleasure of coming together around God's word. And so why do we, or why would I seek to want to shorten that time? So thanks for sitting together and even taking seven minutes out of our Sunday to read an extended passage from God's word, because that has tremendous value for our souls. What we see in this passage, though, is a passage of tremendous similarity to what has gone before it, and it sets a trajectory for what's going to continue to follow in the rest of the whole account of Scripture. We have the story of God preserving his people. And isn't that the story of the whole Bible? Starting in Genesis and going all the way through, it's a story of God preserving and redeeming a people for himself and for his glory in all the earth. Um, Here we have some cowardly sons. We have a sorrowful father. We have a favorite son. We have Joseph. That's what we come to in this text. So I'm going to set our context a little bit with a story. My family is a family that enjoys reading a lot. Um, So we have read a number of books over the summer. We started a new series two or three weeks back. We finished up the first book in that series with our boys on Friday night. And this series has been just a fun one to read. Calvin has dug into it and he's loved it. Hosanna and Micah have hung with it and enjoyed the series as well. But what we've learned as you read aloud a story to a next generation They don't have the benefit of being able to skip ahead in the story and find out where it's going. We've tried to be careful not to look ahead or point ahead too much, but instead to sit in the chapter that we're in right now. And that's what we've done with Calvin over these last couple weeks, especially. And so each day in each chapter is a new kind of revelation of what's going on in the underlying story. Of the book, because oftentimes the problem that we run into is we want to skip ahead. We want to find out where is this going and where does this lead. And I think that human indication of even in our own hearts, as we desire to know what's going to come next, all of you have felt that in some ways. Probably all of you, even right now, are feeling what comes next for me in this story that God is writing. And this passage, Genesis 43 and Genesis 44, shows us exactly that for the people of God, right? God's people are, as they receive these books from Moses, are on the cusp of entering the promised land. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and they're wondering, has God forgotten us out here? Is he still good for us? Is he still good to keep his promises? And how is God realistically going to keep the promise that he made several hundred years ago to our father Abraham? And that promise was one that we saw in Genesis 15. What does God say to Abraham? 
I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your offspring more numerous than the sand of the sea. And in you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Israel says, this is the promise that we have from God. But yet we are out in the wilderness for 40 years. We haven't received this land that God has promised to us. We haven't seen necessarily our our um, generation growing because for the last 40 years, we've wandered in and last generation died off. How is God going to come through on his promise to our family? And this is their history. And this is looking back to real historical truth to say, what has God done in the past? And how does God's past in action inform what God will continue to do and is continuing to do right now. So two weeks ago, we saw a quick video that Kirk showed us that caught us up once again where we are in Genesis. And in Genesis, we began with a perfect couple in the Garden of Eden made in the image of God to glorify him and to spread his name and his glory throughout the whole earth. In one act of cosmic disobedience, men, man and woman come to the tree and they hear from the serpent, do you want to be like God? Do you want to know what God knows, good and evil? And they say, absolutely. We aren't going to trust God, but we're going to trust the serpent instead. And they sin against God. And as a result, mankind falls into sin. And we see this descending spiral of wickedness over and over again throughout the book of Genesis as we've been in it. God is faithful. And he is faithful to preserve a remnant from his people. And we come to Noah And God preserves Noah through the flood, Noah and his sons. God repeats this promise through Noah. And then we get to Abraham, right? And we just, he receives that wonderful promise from God in Genesis 12 and in 15. But now we come to the nation of Israel. And they're not really that great yet. Jacob, he has 12 sons. One of them he believes is dead. As we learned last week, another of them is now in prison. And as we listen to Josh read this morning, we see that Jacob despairs that that son, Simeon, is still alive. He said, one of my sons is dead, torn to pieces, and the other one is no more to me. And that is where we come to in this text this morning. And just like God revealed to Joseph several chapters ago, through Pharaoh's dream, there's going to be seven years of severe famine. And guess what? That's still true. We begin in verse 43, chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe. The people are famished, and what famished people are looking for is sustenance. The only problem that we have right now is that there is an ultimatum that Joseph laid down with his brothers. Who remembers what the ultimatum was? If you come back, bring the youngest brother with you, right? But yet, ten brothers know the problem with this. The youngest brother is Benjamin, and he can't leave dad's side, or dad's going to die. There's one son, supposedly murdered. That's Joseph. He's now in the position of power. There's a second son, Simeon, who's now in prison. And then there's ten other boys at home. And we're going to look at broad storylines as we begin to wrap up 
truthfully, this whole book of Genesis, and we're, we're moving the story forward. The dream that Joseph dreamed all those years ago in Canaan is coming true now. The stalks of wheat are now bowing down to the sheaf of Joseph. We've said over and over through this series that God is at work to redeem and to transform his people through suffering and trial and adversity. And this is a continuation of that because Joseph is testing the waters for his brothers through severe trial. Four scenes come to light from this passage, and they're going to give us structure for today. Four scenes exist. The first one is a scene in the house of Jacob. The second scene is in the house of Joseph. The third scene is the inciting action. And the fourth scene is kind of the the showdown with Joseph, if you will. What's going to happen? As we come to scene one in the house of Joseph, it mirrors the previous scene that has occurred. The one where Joseph has received a coat of many colors as the favored son of Joseph. Because once again, we see the favorite son of Joseph being the subject of discussion, right? This time it's not Joseph any longer, but it's now Benjamin, the only son of Rebekah. Because Joseph, in the, at least in the mind of Jacob, is now dead. The scene has a different tone, though, now. Now it's marked with a different kind of attitude from his brothers. Where previously, Joseph is viewed with disdain, with hatred, with anger, with rage, with jealousy, with all of these unholy and unpure uh, emotions. Now what we see from the brothers is a change of heart that is evident. Because what they have done for their father and for their brother, Benjamin, is that they've come around to protect him. The person who takes, who steps to the forefront in this scene is none other than Judah. And if you remember, Judah's the one who decided to sell Joseph to the Midianite traders in the first place. 22 years ago, he made a decision that affected his whole life. And he said, because of the anger in my heart, because of the rage and the jealousy, the hatred of my brother that leads me to murderous thoughts, I'm going to sell my brother into slavery and be done with him forever. But yet something has happened over these last 22 years because Judah steps to the foreground and he says, I'll protect your, your son. I'll be the one to make sure that he comes home safely. This is an interesting, interesting scene. He says, if I do not return, then let me bear the blame forever. See, guilt and shame are powerful forces that are at work here. But yet what they have done in the life of Judah has not destroyed him, but yet it has changed him. There's a tremendous beauty in what God has done in the life of Judah. Now, it's interesting because we get this picture into what's happened as we read the text. But this has occurred over a long period of time. Joseph doesn't know what's going on. 
Perhaps the change may not have even been evident in the life of Judah himself. In fact, it can be cloudy and obscured, obscured from the text. Because just a couple chapters ago in Genesis chapter 38, the one right before here, where all of a sudden we had this like chunk of the pie where it's like the story seems to be incredibly interrupted by the story of Judah and Tamar. Remember that one? It's pretty terrible. Like that's the same Judah that now is saying to his father, if I don't bring the boy back, then let this guilt be upon myself. He's no longer one that's only after self-preservation. But he's looking out for not only his brother, but also for their family as well. Because what is the driving force underneath what's going on here? It's compassion for their father. Like we don't want to see our father brought to death in sorrow. There's compassion that underlies this whole narrative. I can only imagine the sorrow that is at play for Jacob as he prepares to send out his 10 remaining sons, including his favorite son. But what he does, and I don't want you to miss this, his response is to call on God to protect his sons. He says, may God Almighty, this is verse 14, chapter 43, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send your other brother, send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. There's a little footnote probably in your Bible for that may God Almighty. And it says in the Hebrew, that's the word El Shaddai. El simply means God and Shaddai means the God who is almighty. So Jacob, even in his fear, even in his worry, even in his love for his son, both Benjamin and Simeon, who's in prison in, um, in Egypt, as well as the other, the other ten, still is acknowledging that God is the one, ultimately, who preserves his children. I think that we, we can stop right here for just a second. I can throw out a bit of application for parents in the room. And let me tell you this. As a parent myself, it's so easy for us to begin to assume that we are the one who protects our children, that we're the one who tries to keep them from harm, that we're the one who it's our job to keep them safe all the time, that it's our job to know what's going on. And yes, those things are true. But what we see here in the life of of Jacob is even a beautiful, tiny little picture into what it looks like to trust the Lord as we parent children. So for parents in the room, like maybe this needs to be, to be put on the mirror in your bathroom. May El Shaddai protect my children and give them favor. Because truthfully, all of our best efforts, all of our greatest plans, all of our engagement with our kids can't necessarily keep them safe and preserve them from harm. Can't preserve their life any longer than God allows because Jacob here is faced with very, very few options. Either die because the famine is severe or send his son Benjamin to Egypt in order that they might acquire grain. That's that's all that's on the table for him. And so what he does is he opens his hands to the Lord and says, may the Lord protect my kids.
and give them favor. Really interesting scene one, right? The house of, jo- of Jacob. Scene two, we're building. We're building the action here. It's in the house of Joseph. So the once despised brother, the one who is favored by the father, the one who receives the coat of many colors, the one who has these abominable dreams that the sun and the moon and the stars bow down to him and that the 12 sheaves of wheat gather around him and bow down to him. That brother is now, like it says in previous chapters, the second in command in Egypt. And I would venture to say more powerful than Pharaoh because after all, Joseph is the one who holds the keys to life and death. He holds all the food. So now we're in his house. The once despised brother is in charge, position of immense power, yet these brothers, the ten brothers, do not know it. Joseph treats them as they come, not according to their sin. Just as we saw last week, Joseph doesn't treat these brothers according to their sin against him. But he treats them with mercy, with compassion, with fairness, right? They come to him. Not only that, last week he gave them their money back in the mouth of their sack. So they opened it up and was like, oh no, the money's here. So they brought that money. They bring extra money. They bring gifts. They're trying to like soften the blow in front of, uh, in front of Joseph here to say, let's try to kind of grease the wheels of democracy right here that are at play. But yet Joseph still has a plan that they're not privy to. We're privy to it as we read it, but they don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Joseph has a test laid out for them. But the first thing that he does is he shows them tremendous compassion and mercy. He brings the brother Simon out of Simeon out of prison. He presents them 11 brothers in front of him and him being the 12th. And all the 12 brothers are back together for the first time in 22 years. There's a family reunion that's going on here. They just don't know it yet right? Brings all the brothers together, sets the table before them. And then he proceeds, they proceed to have this meal together, but there's this craziness that's going on in the middle of it. They come in, they're all groveling on the ground saying, Oh my Lord, we came the first time to buy food. This is verse 21. When we came to our lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was all of our money with us. So we have brought down other money to buy food and we do not know Who put the money in our sacks? And he said, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brings out Simeon. He restores them. And when the men had brought them into the house and given them water and they washed their feet and gave their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard they were going to eat with him. Joseph comes home from a long day of work to eat lunch with the boys. They bring him into the house with the present. They bow down to the ground. And he asks about them. He asks about their father. And then he lifts up his eyes. And what does he see? He sees the favorite son of his father, Benjamin. And 20 years, 22 years worth of emotion come pouring over him. He excuses himself and runs out of the room, right? There's kind of this really, really strange thing that's going on here. He runs out of the room. His compassion grew warm for his brother, and he looks for a place to weep. He enters his chamber. He wept there. 31, he washes his face. He comes out, and he says, serve the food. They serve him alone, the brothers over there, and the servant somewhere else, because, get this, 
This is really interesting. It's in verse 32. They serve him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And they look at each other in amazement. And from his table, he serves each of them food, right? Ten brothers all get food. And then the 11th brother gets five times as much food. So not only is Benjamin the favorite brother at home, now they're hundreds of miles away from home, and the the dignitary, the, the ruler of the free world, also has a favorite, and it's not them. It's Benjamin, once again. 22 years ago, Joseph's brothers would have said, kill the little guy, right? But today... What do they do? They drank and were merry with him. They rejoice together. No longer is this this jockeying for position and vying for power that his brothers previously had. But now there's all the brothers together eating and celebrating together. Now, all of us have been through the line at, at a potluck. And this is kind of the way Ben Clark rolls through potluck lines. I want to wait for the women and children to go first, but then I, I kind of want to get pretty decent position in line because if you're the last person, it's a tough spot. Like you're getting like three green beans and like the small piece of chicken. And it's just a tough spot to be. But if you position yourself in the line just right, like you can roll through that thing and pick out the choice portions, right? And then you sit down and you have all the food and it doesn't really look like you're just a glutton and just wanting the best stuff. But truthfully, that's where you're at. You're like, I got the good stuff right here in front of me. But it's just a little bit different. When somebody has five times as much, you're like, well, I have one T-bone and he has five. That's obvious. That's evident. Benjamin's not a little bit favored. He's a lot favored. This is where the test begins. Let me give Benjamin a better portion. Let me give him distinct honor and glory. Let me give him the best things. And we'll let the brothers be kind of chopped liver. What's going to happen? That's the beginning of the test. This is a tough little section to read for me because I see all this favoritism at play. Like, Joseph, be better than this. Like, your dad did it. You see how well it turned out for you. Don't do it to your younger brother. Like, you're just putting a target on his back. But yet this is the test that he's setting up. He gives them their grain, and here is the inciting incident. Chapter 44, it begins. And we have Joseph giving clear instructions to the steward of his house, right? And he says to them, fill every boy's bag up with grain. Fill it in as much as they'll hold. Put their money back in the top. Then take my special cup, my divination cup, and stick it in Benjamin's sack, okay? And the steward's like... All right, man, do what you want. 
So he does exactly that. Then he sends them out. Go your way. Have fun. Be peaceful. Tell your father, hey. Right? And they have been gone just a little while. And then he says to the steward, go after them. Because uh, they stole my cup. I can imagine kind of the, what's at play in the steward's mind. He's like, they didn't steal your cup. You gave it to them. And now you're going to accuse them of theft. But far be it from me to accuse the most in charge person in the world of doing anything wrong. So sure, I'll go after them. So he goes after them. And this is crazy. Right? Um, let, me, let me get to where I am. Verse 6. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, the ones that Joseph had just commanded him. And they said to him, verse 7, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be your Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. All of them take their sacks down and they open them up. And he searched, verse 12, beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. This is a perfect alibi. The brothers from 22 years ago could have said, we don't know what's at work here, but the cup is in the favorite son's bag and therefore were innocent. They could have headed home with their grain, gone back to their father. This is the perfect setup. Benjamin just became the fall guy and they didn't have anything at all to do with it. But, verse 13, then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. When they came to the house, that's, that's the scene three, inciting incident, right? Everything that has happened to this point has served to set up the perfect opportunity for 10 hateful, rage-filled, jealous, envious, murderous-intentioned, um, greedy for their own profit brothers to take their liberty and run away with it. Truthfully, right now, they don't even have to go back to dad's house. They have food. They have some possessions. They could kind of start over right now and said, bad luck. Two favorite sons, they're both gone, but we're good. But yet that's not at all what has happened. Remember how over and over, and I said even at the beginning, over and over in the book of Genesis, we've seen how Joseph has been in the pressure cooker of sanctification during his time in Egypt. He sits in jail for two years, forgotten by the baker and the cupbearer, waiting to see what God's going to do. How is God going to redeem? How is God going to be faithful to me? And what has happened is that he has learned to trust God in the midst of really difficult and really trying circumstances. 
but he doesn't know what's gone on at home for 22 years. And so he's testing the hearts of his brothers. There's the inciting incident. Now we get to scene four. So we start out in Joseph's house, or sorry, we start out in Jacob's house. We see this, the setting up of what's going to happen. Then we get to the scene in Joseph's house where he lavishes this mercy and this grace on these bunch of undeserving scumbag brothers. Then we get to this inciting incident. And finally, we're going to get to the fourth scene. And that is um, just the rising action, this culmination of everything that's occurred to this point. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to let it out of the bag right now. I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger this week. So when Kirk gets back next week, we get to chapter 45 and see the culmination and the restoration of what's going on here. But we're, we're stopping with a cliffhanger this week. This cliffhanger involves the longest speech recorded in the whole book of Genesis. And this speech is between Judah and Joseph. The last time we saw, you know, too much of a glorious speech, it was Judah saying to his brothers, Hey, look, there's some Midianite traders. Let's sell our brother to them get 20 pieces of silver, and then we can say that we have no idea what happened to him. We'll dip his coat in some blood, we'll give it to dad, and all of a sudden, problem child is solved. But now, we have another speech from Judah. Verse 14, when they come to his house, to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell down before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Let's take a pause for just one second. In this passage of scripture, we see that Joseph is not a perfect human too, right? So often we can look at the story of Joseph and we can kind of whitewash and sanitize like his actions his heart motivations. We can say, man, Joseph functions in scripture as a type of Jesus, the saving of the entire nation of Israel and the preservation of God's people even happened through Joseph. Like, man, what a, what this beautiful thing that's going on here. But yet Joseph in the last little section we were looking at and right now has twice acknowledged that this cup of his has something to do with this practice of divination. Now there's two, there's two responses we can come to from reading that in the text. One is that some of the pagan practices of Egypt indeed have rubbed off on Joseph. There's, there's a very strong possibility that that has happened for Joseph. He's not perfect. Second of all, this is part of the ruse that he is pulling on his brothers, in which case there's some deception going on. And regardless of if that deception is part of a trying to dif- discern the hearts of these men in front of me or not, it's still wrong. So it's either there's some deception at play or there's truthfully some sin against God where there's some kind of divination that's going on, which is an abomination to the Lord. So we got to be careful not to overly sanitize this character and look at him as a perfect sort of man. But yet, even through that kind of a person, God continues to be at work for the preservation of his people and the continuation of his promise. We're going to keep getting to that 
Verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What's he talking about? They just six or eight verses before have said, we did not steal anything from you. In fact, we brought the money that previously was in our sacks back again. How could we have stole silver or gold from your master's house? So before the steward, they've said, our hands are clean. We're innocent. But now they're saying, our guilt has been found out. And what is that guilt that they're speaking of? They're speaking of something 22 years ago that occurred that they don't think the man in front of them has any idea about. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph says, far be it from me that I should do so. I'm not going to take you all. Only the man in whose cup the in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Once again, sets them up with the fat pitch that they can take that swing and go straight back home to dad and say, we had nothing to do with Benjamin being gone. Something happened that was completely out of our control and they could have taken the easy way out. Verse 18, then Judah goes up to him and he begins his speech. He says, O Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. Then he goes on to tell Joseph the events that transpired previously. Here's what you asked us. Here's how we responded. We went home and we told dad about it. And this was the conversation that occurred. We came back. We didn't do anything wrong. Um, we get toward the end of this, this passage. And Judah, the one who previously sold out his brother for 20 pieces of silver, now stands before, um, before Joseph, the brother whom he sold. And he says, now, therefore, this is verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This speech right here, the longest speech recorded in Genesis is one begging for mercy. It's a plea for mercy. This morning, we sang Mediator from, from uh, Timothy. And this is exactly what's occurring in this passage. Judah is standing before Joseph as a mediator for his brother, Benjamin. The very one who sold Joseph out in the first place, only because he was the favorite son, now stands before the other favorite son and says, take me instead. Take me instead. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? 
That's the story that we come to in Genesis 43 and 44 this morning. It's full of mystery. It's full of intrigue. It's got a great cliffhanger ending. And it's full of changes in heart. Joseph has been sitting in the growth chamber of God for the past 22 years. And something has happened in his own heart. Because all of us, when we're wronged to any degree, there is some anger, there's some resentment, there's some bitterness that can boil up inside of us. But yet something has happened in the life of Joseph over these past 22 years. And what he desires to see is where are my brothers at now? And what has God been doing in their heart? Has the same softening that's occurred in my heart? Because we're going to get to that in just a couple of chapters. We're going to see Joseph's heart position before God. But he's wondering, where are my brothers at? How has God changed their hearts in the same way that he has changed mine? So how does this passage... As we, as we begin to start tying some loose ends together. How does this passage, though, come to the nation of Israel as they were about to come into the land of promise after 40 years of wandering in the desert, asking questions of God? As I asked myself in this text that question, I believe that some of the questions that this answers for the nation of Israel are these. Do the people of Israel and the people of God now trust in the mercy and the providence of God? Do they trust what God is doing? Through all of the ups and downs that have occurred in their time of wandering, there's this beautiful little teeny thing that we oftentimes miss in the Exodus wandering of the people of Israel. And it says this teeny little piece of providence of God. It says all the time that they wandered around in the desert, they never wanted for food and their shoes never wore out. Now, I don't know if any of you have a 40 year old pair of shoes. I don't. But that's because I haven't made it to 40 yet. And also, I would not fit shoes from 40 years ago. Also, they don't make shoes that don't wear out in 40 years. Um, I do a little bit of running in my free time. And I can get about six months out of a pair of shoes before the bottoms are flat and my knees start to feel it. Six months. Now imagine walking around in a hot, arid desert for 40 years on sand and rocks and think, are those leather soles going to make it for 40 years? Not feeling it. But God, for 40 years, preserves his people alive, keeping his promise to them in such a way that they never run out of food because every single day, six days a week, Something shows up on the ground called manna, and they're like, what is this? This is God's provision for us. And on the sixth day, they gather twice as much, and it doesn't go bad. Every single day, God provides for them. And none of their shoes wear out for 40 years of wandering in the desert. Does the nation of Israel trust their God? Has something different happened that happened 40 years before that, when they came out of Egypt and Exodus tells us, then they grumbled against God in the wilderness and they said, 
we wish that we were back in Egypt because Egypt has these pots full of meat and we sat by them and ate everything that we wanted. Now, was that truth? No, in fact, it wasn't true. They didn't sit around pots of meat just eating. It says they were put to forced labor and Pharaoh despised them so much that he quit even giving them straw and upped the quota of bricks that they had to make. So they're like under hard labor in a prison camp, not eating pots of meat. But three days outside of Egypt, God's people forget that and say, we wish we were back there. Instead of coming into the wilderness to worship our God and to go to a land that he has promised to us. Has something changed in their hearts from when they came to the border of Canaan the first time and 12 spies come out of Canaan and say, this land is a good land. But there's giants. And even though God provided or even though God got us here and God promised to give this land to us, we can't take it because those giants, they're too big. Has something changed in the nation of Israel's heart? As we read forward in the story, we do see that God provides a change of heart for his people as they come to the land of Canaan for the second time. I think there also, this this passage comes to the nation of Israel right then to say, are they still believing the same lies? We kind of touched this, that they believed in Egypt, that life was better then. Are we still believing, or are they still believing those same lies? From 40 years ago. For the brothers of Joseph. In this 20 year process. They could have been sitting there saying. We offed Joseph. Benjamin is now the favorite son. Nothing's changed with dad. Or has God been at work. Changing them. I think what we do see is that God has been at work changing them. We see that in the life and the response of Judah, where he comes and stands before the most powerful man in the world. And he says, take my life, not his. He's the guilty one. Make me pay. The nation of Israel also, I believe, comes to this passage. This is the first time. It has to ask themselves this question. Are they trusting and the promises of God. And those promises go way, way back. They go back to their father, Abraham. Are they trusting in God's promise to make them a great nation, more numerous than the sands of the earth, more numerous than the stars in the heavens that they can count, to make them a great nation, to bless them, to bring them into a good land, and then in turn to make them a blessing to the world. Are they trusting that promise? I think that's where this text comes to the nation of Israel 6,000 years ago. And I think it comes to us in the exact same way. They come to us and make us ask the same kind of difficult questions. Have we come to trust God over the different seasons of our life? especially those seasons in which he has brought trial and adversity and hardship to us. Have we come to trust God over those seasons of our life? I think we need to ask the same second question that the nation of Israel asked. Do we keep coming back to the same place where we believe the same old lies? 
the same old lies about God, the same old lies about our circumstances, the same old lies about what God is up to. We fall into those old traps of feeling like God is, um, is the guy on Super Smash Brothers who gets that hammer, and all of a sudden, that every time they hit something, they're just looking for somebody to cast off the screen, right? Maybe that one doesn't really land, but I don't know. I always think of that. That's the default for me. The Super Smash Brothers, God with the holy hammer, just looking to whack somebody. Are we trusting that we are loved by God, that God is for us, and that as the people of God, he is out to make us a blessing to those who are around us? That's where it begins to connect to the missional heart of God. Even in a place like Genesis, as we're seeing history of people. Yet we know, without any shadow of a doubt, that God is for us. And we know this because he sent his son, his only son, his beloved son, his favorite son, for us to take our place so that we who are God's enemies might be reconciled to God. Yes, Joseph does serve as a type of Christ in Scripture. He comes to a position of power so that he might keep alive his people. But in this passage, we also see Judah, who comes before the one who has incredible power, and he pleads for the life of his brother. And there was one who came from the line of Judah. The same Judah that had this adulterous, incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law in Genesis 38, that same Judah... God sent a son of that Judah to stand before the most powerful being in the universe, which is God himself, and plead for his brothers. And to say, the punishment that is due them for their sin against the most powerful being in the universe, let that sin and let that punishment fall on me. Treat me as if I was the one who committed the sin, so that the guilty one might go free. And that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He calls us his brothers, and while he was the favorite son of God, the only son of God, he stood before God, he said, let me take the full punishment due to the sin of my brothers and my sisters. Every wrong that they have ever done, every way that they have ever sinned against you, every time that they have committed cosmic treason, just like their father Adam did in the garden, let all of that punishment come and fall on me. And he did all of that so that you and I might come and sit at the table of God Most High. That we might receive the favorite son's portion. 
See, when Christ became for us our substitutionary atonement, that is, that he stood before God and became the meteor saying, let me stand in the place of guilty sinner so that the guilty sinner might go free. When he did that before God, it was so that we might receive the five-time blessing portion from God. There's tremendous beauty in this story. Not just because it shows how people's heart changes. And that's great. I mean, I don't know about you that are here, but I know for me, as I come to scripture and I see the stories of people whose lives changed, that's a wonderful thing to see. For Joseph and for, or for Jacob and for his brothers, there may have been several things that motivated that change of heart. One of those things might have been guilt. Some of it may have been shame. A whole lot of it, I know, was the work of God at life in their lives to change them. Because God is always faithful to his promises. And God has had promised before any of them were even born that he was going to, through their family, make a great nation for himself that would spread to the ends of the earth and fill heaven eventually with people from tribes and tongues and nations and peoples and lands that are gathered around the throne and guess what? A huge table to celebrate this favorite son. And in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see this. We see that we through union with Jesus Christ, become the favorite son of God. So as you think of your life, as you think of your yesterday and today, and you think of your one month ago and one year ago, and five and 20 and 50 years ago, as you think of your life, and you see the work of God in your life, what that should lead to is this immense boiling over gratitude for what has Jesus done for me? In what ways has he redeemed me? In what ways has he brought life to me? In what ways has he changed those patterns of fleshly behavior that used to dominate and control everything that I did and said and was like? And how has he changed that to be something that glorifies him through the work of Jesus? If you want to some homework for today, go home and read Galatians chapter 5, starting about in the middle, around verse 16, and read through the end of the chapter. And Paul says these words, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he lists Joseph's brother's behavior. And he lists you and I's behavior. And he says, And you too. We're like that. But the fruit of God's spirit is completely different and completely opposite. And it comes about because you and I, through faith alone, are united to Jesus Christ. And what we get to do this morning is we get to come to this table. A table that's been set out for us by Jesus himself.
where on the day before, the very night before, he took our place in front of God on high. He broke bread and he gave it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body, which was given for you. Do this every time you remember me. We eat bread and remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And then he took a cup and he hands it to them. And he says, this cup, this is a new covenant in my blood. And every time you drink it, remember that I in my blood have washed you clean. So that you might stand before God as the favorite son of God. Romans 8 tells us that we don't receive a spirit of slavery to fall into fear. That's what Jacob's trying, I mean, that's what Judah is trying to say to, to Joseph. Hey, take me as a slave in the place of my brothers. Well, we don't, we don't receive a spirit of slavery to fall into fear. But what we receive from Christ Jesus is a spirit of sonship by which we call Abba Father. So as we come to the table this morning to take of the bread and to take of the cup, what we do is we remember our brother, Jesus Christ, who took our place so that we might be united to Jesus Christ. The band's going to come up and they're going to play too as we, as we prepare, but don't feel rushed. Like, I want you to commune with Jesus Christ. Thank him for who he is, for what he has done, for the redemption that he has brought in your life. Look back at your life and say, how has God changed me? And in that, how can I then be a blessing to those that are around me? Let's pray.